So Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, reading through to verse 26. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, "'Blessed are you who are poor,' for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Amen. May God bless this word to our understanding. I asked you earlier on to think about when you were picked, and it was interesting looking at this passage, and it wasn't intentionally done this way, but it's worked out quite nicely, thank you, Um, that actually we're looking looking at this passage where Jesus spoke what sounded like quite arresting and quite um, alarming words in some respects, and what was the context in which he did that? This is the point in Luke's gospel, and each gospel writer records the calling of the uh, disciples differently, but all three of the synoptic gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them have a kind of two-stage where there's an early description of Jesus calling Peter and Andrew and James and John, and then a little later on, uh, there's a point where Jesus calls the twelve calls them apart as disciples, and he designates them apostles. So, disciples are trainees or apprentices, pupils, and apostles are sent ones, ones who are emissaries, ambassadors, sent out on a task with a mission to fulfill. And it's in the context of Jesus just having spent time in prayer on a mountainside, spent the night praying to God, that he then, we're told, called uh, his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Notice the language. He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. We tend to think when it talks about the disciples, we're talking about the 12. But the two terms are not, uh, they're not, you can't substitute them for each other. They're not co-equal or whatever. And so there was a bigger group of disciples, I suppose like concentric circles in any church, There will be people who will be kind of on the fringe, who'll dip in and out, 
And then there will be people that will come more regularly. And then you'll find the closer you get uh, in, in, in terms of the structure of, of a church as, as an organization, you get the people who take leadership, make responsibility, who carry, who shoulder the burden. And so Jesus had a group of disciples, some of whom had decided to follow him. Some of whom were just inquiring and finding out. Some of whom were just, what's going on here then? Some of whom are hungry for a miracle or for some help. And some of whom had to, to uh, one degree or another committed, thrown their lot in with Jesus. And so from this innermost circle, Jesus chose 12, a significant number, an equivalent number for the 12 tribes of Israel. This is God's new society. And these are, if you like, the 12 tribes or the equivalent of the 12 tribes. And so we read that Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place, went down from the mountain, and now he's standing on a level place. And a large crowd of his disciples, so again, the bigger group, not just the 12, and a great number of people from all over Judea. Judea was in the south, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. So in terms of a map of Israel, we've got Jerusalem down here, and I'm going to get mixed up, I think. I'm running the wrong way, so it must be over there. Tyre and Sidon are up here on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, Tyre and Sidon would be in southern Lebanon now, I think. Um, and so there's a massive, all that to say, there's a group of people from all over the place. <laughs> that's what that's about. There's a group of people who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and people were trying to touch him because power was flowing through him and from him and healing them all. That's the context. So, 12 people called to particular responsibility and, and uh, leadership and headship, and then within that group, there was a crowd of other disciples and then it says, looking at his disciples, he said, not just the 12, but the crowd of disciples. And he says these words, which are um, easy for us, I suppose, to misinterpret. Blessed are you who are poor. I've just read it, so I'm not going to read it all again. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you. Now, let's not be naive. Jesus is not blessing poverty and seeing that poverty in and of itself as a material circumstance is a good thing. The poor you will always have with you, he said, and you can help them anytime you want. And so Jesus recognized that the poor, materially so, were people who were in need of help, support, compassion, generosity. Blessed are you who hunger now. Well, if Jesus thought being hungry was blessed, why did he take five loaves and two fish and turn them into a picnic? Because he was concerned about the crowd who had nothing to eat. Why, if Jesus thought weeping was blessed, did he say to Mary, as she stood outside the empty tomb, weeping, woman, why are you weeping? And did all he could or in, in just with one word indeed, he said, Mary, <laughs> and dried her tears. 
Indeed, when Jesus stood at Lazarus' tomb, we're told unusually that Jesus wept, and we're not given that to believe that Jesus was standing there at Lazarus' tomb weeping because that was a blessed thing. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, and insult you. And yes, there's a blessedness about the crucifixion because we benefit from it. But at no point are we naive enough to imagine that when Jesus was being beaten up, spat at, mocked, and uh, finally crucified in shame and exposure outside the city walls of Jerusalem, that that was in and of itself a blessed thing. Of course, it was a means of blessing and salvation and redemption. And so Jesus is at odds with himself if he's simply saying these are all good things of themselves. So what is he saying? Hold that thought because let's look at the woes. And actually, we tend to think of the, the Greek word is why. Oh, it's a kind of omicron, upsilon, alpha. Yeah, forget that one. What the iota. It's, it's, it's a kind of onomatopoeic word that goes why. Okay. It's not our why, it's our why. And probably why is related to woe. It's probably related to the German we, which means pain. But what's significant here, I'll just I'll stop the etymology stuff. <laughs> I'm a linguist, I like it. Is that this word why was not a word of judgment. It was not a word of threat. It was a word of regret, of shame, of sadness, of tragedy. It meant, oh, wow, what a tragedy. You guys are so missing out. It's that kind of woe. It's, it's, it's not a, there's a judgment coming. It's much more a sense of, you guys are not going to have the fullness that you could have because there are things blocking you from the fullness you could have. So, woe to you. Tragedy for you if you are rich. Tragedy for you if you are well-fed now. Tragedy for you if you laugh now. Tragedy for you if people speak well of you. Because you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on the fullness and the riches of what God has for you. So let, in just a little bit of time, us think about each of these. Poverty in and of itself, then, is unwelcome. That's the reality. I defy you to ask anybody who's poor, and we who are rich, well-fed, and comfortable— can, no, should not dare to, but we can sentimentalize and romanticize poverty as though it was this kind of, I don't know, romantic thing, which it absolutely and utterly is not. It sticks in my throat even to say that, but there's an, an attitude sometimes. There's a phrase, and, and sorry if you don't like this phrase, but there's a phrase, poverty porn, where we can use and abuse the poor uh, and dip in and out of their need for our own sense of identification or compassion. 
But poverty in and of itself will force us potentially, it may force us in one of a number of directions. The poor, if they are materially poor, may well just fall back on their own wits and resources to survive. That's just human nature. So they will do what it takes for my survival and my survival alone. And sometimes poverty leads people into a place of bitterness and self-pity because of their lot. Why me? Why me? And it's totally understandable. Why did I have to be born into circumstances which in the kind of chaotic cycle of my uh, background, because perhaps of addiction or unemployment or disability or a whole host of issues, I just don't have enough. Why me? And for some people, poverty may push people in the direction of becoming scheming and devious and ruthless to get what they want. I don't care about you. I'm going to take what I can get. So poverty in and of itself does not automatically propel people in the direction of blessedness. That's not what Jesus is saying. He had compassion on those who were anxious about how to survive. Look at the birds of the air, he said. Trust your Father to feed. As he feeds them, trust him to feed you. And so in each of these cases, the response to poverty is the journey towards self. I need, I haven't got, I must survive at all costs. If I don't fight my own corner, no one will fight it for me. I am, I've said this so many times, an orphan, alone in the world to survive. But you see, there's another opportunity. There's another opportunity that Jesus is really pointing to with these words. He's not portraying poverty as something to be avoided, but he's inviting those who are poor to see it as a gift if used well and wisely. You don't have all that you need? Well, hallelujah. You understand probably better than those who are provided for what it means to dare to trust beyond yourself and in the God who made you and who cares for you. You see, if poverty turns you in on yourself, it's destructive. But if poverty can lead you to say, well, I can't fix this, but I'm going to dare to believe in a God who can. I'm going to dare to believe that actually there's a God who cares about me and who knows my name. Poverty can be an invitation to discover the reality and the grace and the generosity and the provision of God. I have had in my life some of the most powerful experiences and expressions of God's grace and generosity when I have been materially poor. When Ruth and I didn't know how we were going to pay our electricity bill, very early on when I was a student, and uh, I was student full-time, Ruth was uh, working full-time to support both of us, and money was very tight. And there have been times and seasons where money has been really tight. And actually, it forces you back onto God because otherwise you will just rely on yourself. And poverty is a, a qualification to enter into a life of generosity towards other people. 
It's an invitation to enter into a life of generosity towards other people. Some of the most movingly generous people I've seen. I was street pastoring one night down at the four corners at the bottom of Union Street outside McDonald's. There was a, a homeless guy there, and a woman came with a big shopping bag full of baguettes and cans of iron brew, and she said, uh, there you are, son, and she gave this guy a couple of baguettes and a can of iron brew, or did she get him a cup of tea? I can't remember. And she happened to say in conversation, she said, I was homeless once myself. I know exactly what it's like. And it looked to me that she probably wasn't too many notches above the place where she had been, but out of her understanding... There was a heart of generosity and compassion. Blessed are you who are poor. It's why Matthew talks about being poor in spirit. It's really just about recognizing your poverty and your need. Because the other side of recognizing your poverty and your need is being blindly self-sufficient. Woe to you. How tragic for those of you who are rich, because you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing in trusting that there is a God who is willing to love you and provide for you. You don't know what you're missing in coming to know the grace and the riches of God who knows your name, but your ears are stopped because you're focused on doing it for yourself and by yourself. You have no sense of the humility or the need that casts you at the foot of the cross because I did it my way. Blessed are you who hunger now. Not because Jesus wanted people to be hungry, but because he wanted people to look beyond the mere hand-to-mouth survival from day to day. Truly, I tell you, said Jesus in John 6, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. He was calling them to a different kind of hunger, to get beyond the day-to-day just having enough food to eat. And he said, and your father knows that you need it, and he'll provide for you if you trust him. But he was calling them to another hunger, the longing for something more. Those who respond to that nagging sense that there's more to life than just having a square meal or three of them each day. We feed people in the cafe here through the week, and for some it meets their needs and they go on, but for others it brings us into relationship. One of the highlights of my week is a group, a Bible study, guys' Bible study group that I have in here on a Thursday. And we eat together, and that's great. We spend an hour uh, just eating and uh, rubbing each other mercilessly and finding out what's been going on and all the rest of it. But then we get to the real food, and we spend an hour reading the Bible, reading the gospel together. Because every one of the guys, and some of them are coming out of backgrounds of uh, addiction, most of them poverty and so on, have come to the place where they know food isn't enough. (laughs) Just getting enough to eat isn't enough. There's got to be more to life than this, as Alpha's famous strapline has it. 
Blessed are you who weep now over the state of the world, over the lost, over the hurt and brokenness that plague this world, for people who live without the hope that Jesus alone can bring. It's not just anxiety or distress, but it goes hand in hand with the kind of weeping and praying and longing, come Lord Jesus, come. Blessed are you who weep now because it demonstrates a heart of compassion and concern. There are no political systems or social structures which will deal with the problem of the human heart or break the power of our addiction to sin. It's only knowing Jesus and having a heart transformation that will begin to bring us to the place where we can know the blessedness that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are you who are hated and excluded because of the Son of Man, it says critically here. Blessed are you when your life is so committed to living for that which is beyond visible sight or understanding, that other people laugh and scoff and mock and exclude you as a fundy or a weirdo or a religious nutcase or whatever. Blessed are you because you've seen beyond what we think is all there is to see. And so, woe, a sadness, a regret, a tragedy to the rich who are so materially provided for that they live without a care or an awareness. Jesus told the the parable of the rich fool, the man whose crops yielded a bumper harvest and he built bigger barns. And God said to him, you fool, this night your life will be required of you. Now who will get what you've stored up for yourself? And the warning in all of that was not to be rich towards yourself, but to be rich towards God. Woe to you who are well fed. Having the satisfaction of being able to eat out anywhere and not knowing or realizing that there is more to it than that. Woe to you who laugh, not because laughter is a sin. I'm sure Jesus, I bet it was a laugh being around Jesus. I bet he laughed a lot in his life and in his ministry, despite the the joyless, lifeless, somewhat insipid portrayals of Jesus, which we sometimes find in formal works of art. Jesus was full of life, and my life is full of laughter. I hope yours is too. So I don't think Jesus is down on laughter but he's talking about the kind of laughter that means living without a care in the world for anybody else. Laughing and carrying on, unaware of the other, unaware of one's own brokenness or guilt or shame. The kind of folly that doesn't take seriously, that just goes from from, uh, high to high to high. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's lots of people who live like that. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Now, popularity or being spoken well of is not a bad thing. But if your life never disturbs somebody else because of your relationship with Jesus, there's a guy who's with the Lord now, tragically, Kenny. uh, He was a friend of my brother's, actually more than mine. He uh, he trained together with my brother, a dentist. And I remember... uh, I had fallen away from the Lord, and I remember walking uh, along. I'd gone to some kind of meeting, and I was having a conversation with Kenny. 
And I just had this overwhelming sense of Kenny, that he was someone who was really clean. (laughs) It wasn't just that he was physically clean. I'm sure he was. But that there was something at a deeper level that was clean about him. And it disturbed me. It disturbed me because it made me aware that I was not at that point in my life. You see, there will be times when your life must, if it's going to be of any meaning or value for Jesus, annoy, irritate, offend, discomfort, upset other people. It goes with the turf, my friends. Jesus did it, and if you're his, you'll do it too. And no one sets out to do it, but it's what we're called to. And we're just in about a minute going to move into the part where then we call six people who are going to step up to a little extra notch of leadership. Actually, it won't be a huge difference from what they've already been doing, but we're nonetheless going to, uh, to, to do that. And so it's appropriate that just as Jesus called and set apart 12 people, it was in the context of telling his disciples to make sure that they were focused on the things that really matter. Here in this city center, we're surrounded by blessings and woes. And it's not as simple as saying the rich or the poor. Our calling in our ministry at St. George's Tron, bang in the city center, is to be fully engaged where we are in a city center where the values of the world surround us in shops and offices, with the emphasis in self-reliance, self-advancement, material wealth, and provision. And as people go about their business in these areas, then a lot of the focus is, is, is in the woes column. Woe to you who are rich, the places surrounded by banks and businesses focusing on money. Woe to you who are well-fed now. This place is surrounded by eateries and restaurants, making sure that they compete to feed people well and make a buck out of doing so. Woe to you who laugh now. And this place is surrounded by theaters and cinemas and clubs and pubs and places where people happily spend their evening. Woe to you when people speak well of you This is a place which is devoted to building your popularity. We're in the style mile. What's style about except making you popular or acceptable or pleasing in the eyes of other people? And so much of where we are is devoted to keeping people invested in the woes. And so our calling and our responsibility is to be a sign of the blessed. (laughs) To be a sign of the blessed that say, do you know what? Beyond poverty, there is a relationship with a God who owns all the riches of the world. That our heart and our longing is to reach and engage with as many people as a compassionate response. And yes, to feed the hungry. And yes, to become caring about the materially poor. You can't separate it out. And yes, our responsibility is to weep and to pray and to care. And so that's who we are. And yes, it might mean that people will hate or laugh or mock or think, really, could they not just take this place down and it would be a a throughway from West George Street to George Square? It'd be much easier. 
But as I said to you a few weeks ago, Jesus has inconveniently put a roadblock in the city center to make people stop and I hope stop and think. And you and I are called to be part of that. And some of you today are being called to step up and be leaders in that so that we are a people who point people to blessing and invite people to look beyond the things that surround this place, which Jesus describes in terms of tragedy and loss and blindness and not being able to get it. We need an R. We need to be and are called to be a people who pointing people to Jesus. And if their poverty helps them to see that and understand that, well, that's a gift and a grace that the world will not see or recognize. So let's pray as we transition to this next part of the service.